0: Great weekend. I've enjoyed the speaker so much and visiting with everybody and um, we had a little uh, planned thing before the meeting starting. We we're going to have my sister Doreen and her friend Alette hang, hand out these uh, little prescription pads that uh, Dr. Bob had typed, trust God, clean house, help others, and signed them. And because there was a little bit of confusion from the last meeting, we weren't able to do that, but we've got them. So um, so after the meeting, I'd love to, to hand you on. And, and how do you trust God, clean house, and help others? With the steps. I, I love the, uh, all the literature and our, our fellowship, and Steve and I are going to be sharing about having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And we're going to break it into three parts, and I'm going to share about uh, the spiritual awakening and the, uh, practicing the principles, and he's going to share about uh, carrying this message. Well, um, our literature describes a spiritual awakening, and the twelfth step is the ability to to uh, d- feel, think, believe, act, do things we never could have done previously. And um, I think one of the greatest promises of the twelfth step is that we're going to have a spiritual a spiritual awakening. That I, and the Big Book describes it as a personality change sufficient to recover now uh before i came to that's a huge promise you know i pretty much was convinced that the problem was your personality and not my personality but um but as a result of multiple inventories it's clear to see that um that i needed to have a personality change um i relate to the literature it describes me to a t um you know uh I relate when it talks about how we have a tendency to want to either dominate or be cared for like a child making the world as a protective parent and I can see today I can kind of swing that pendulum and uh, when I was out drinking I was the girl that you know would meet somebody in a bar and quit my little job and move in I mean that's just how I was my dad described me as a will-o-wisp but um, but it was like I'd move in and it's like please take care of me and then it's like You're not doing that right, you know, so it's like begging you to take care of me and then wanting to supervise exactly how that happens and, you know, that's a balance that doesn't work well for successful uh, relations. In fact, in the 12 and 12, when it says the most immediate cause of all my woes, including my alcoholism, is my inability to have successful relations. And so while I was desperate, desperate for relationships with you, um, my personality, my defects, my self-centered fear, my uh, self-obsession, etc., 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 pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth, all the things that went awry in me made that impossible. So I'm grateful for the promise that a result of working these 12 steps, every single one of us, it says, will receive a uh, personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. So in step one, we identified the problem. And step two, we came to believe that there's a solution. And step three, we make a decision to seek that solution. And this is the beginning of a personality change. In step four, I look at my inventory, not yours. Again, I was so adept at taking your inventory, I really thought it was a gift. You know, I'd say, Oh, I got the gift. I got the gift of discernment. You know, I could listen to you very briefly and just reel off all the things you need to change. And, um, and then in step five, we looked at, at our wrongs and not others. In step six and seven, we look at our defects and shortcomings, not others. In step eight, we consider who we have harmed by our character defects. You know, I basically was so self-consumed, I couldn't see past the end of my nose. So I might write in, uh, in the, my fourth step that I was a liar and that I was a cheat, but I didn't think about who I lied to and who I cheated. Um, You know, just not recognizing the whole ripple effect of being that tornado through people's lives. Um, And then in step nine, we clean up our side of the street. And in step 10, that the principle, which I, I'm so grateful that I believe it, I believe that whenever I'm disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with me. Because if I don't believe that, I would be pissed off all the time. I would be a victim because I can't get comfortable until you change. I can't undisturb until you straighten up and fly right. But to have the ability to look at the things in me that need to be changed. And through uh, the God of our understanding and the steps, surrender those things and practice the opposite. So these are things that spiritually mature people do. You know, I had been a spiritual baby. I mean, in fact, I really had been spiritually drugged. I mean, I was unconscious in my spiritual walk. Um, I remember uh, when my sister and I were little, um, we'd gone to a, a neighbor's who had just put up a, a really expensive tent in their backyard. Expensive, nice, brand new tent. And we went in with crayons and wrote all through it. In fact, we even wrote our names. But, um, but when my parents say, did you do that? And I said, no, no, we did not do that. Well, that night I got physically sick. I, I, I couldn't sleep. I was crying. And I went to my parents and I said, yes, yes, I did do it. But instead of recognizing how secrets make me sick, you know, by you know, uh, lying makes me sick. I just spent you know the next twenty-five whatever years honing my skills of deception, you know, so that my conscience, my conscience was drugged, was asleep. So our literature says that um, you know, uh, step eleven, which. This to me is an amazing personality change. That um, you know, the 11-step prayer. Um, you know, I am a worrier. I am a fretter. I am an anxious person. I remember in early sobriety, i asked ask a long timer, "Do you think I'm serene?" And he goes, "You got frantic serenity." Um, (Laughter) And I do get to experience peace and serenity. But it's like the Wednesday night before we came, I woke up at 3 a.m. The night, Thursday night we got here before I spoke, I woke up at 2.30. You know, it's not, that's unusual. Most of the time I get a good night's sleep. But um, but I can wake up and fret. Um, By the grace of God, it's not about crappy things I did during the day. But I still have self-centered fear. You know, um, all of these sorts of things. And that 11th step prayer. You, know, you talk about a personality change sufficient to recover, and I will just you know meditate on that and chew chew on that, you know, and breathe in and breathe out that L- the Lord would make me a channel of His peace, that where there is hatred I could bring love, that where there is wrong I could bring a spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord I could bring harmony, that where there is error I could bring truth, that where there is doubt I could bring faith. That where there's despair, I can bring hope. That where there are shadows, I can bring light. That where there is sadness, I can bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it's by self-forgetting that one finds. It's by forgiving that we are forgiven. It's by dying that we awaken to eternal life. So have these concepts. When I'm a producer of harmony, you know, I mean, I remember being drunk and saying, um, if someone just loved me enough, you know, I was like the black hole of you can't love me enough, you can't validate me enough, you can't reassure me enough, I can't get enough approval so so all of this is is a personality change sufficient to recover and our literature has treasure troves of describing that personality that needs to be changed um, I've been trying to solve spiritual problems with non-spiritual solutions and, um, and I'm grateful that I made it to you so one of the things that um, this practicing of principles, you know, I, all my life I heard uh, practice makes perfect. Well, practice doesn't necessarily make perfect, but it makes better. So I'm not going to achieve perfection in these uh, principles, but, um, but I, I get to practice them. The, the, the willingness to practice is in itself a spiritual growth. Um, Without the spiritual principles of the 12 steps, there could be no AA. Instead, there would be a group of restless, irritable, discontent, disgruntled alcoholics, temporarily on the wagon, living in a perpetual state of mental drunkenness. Our sobriety demands a personality change. We gain this in the form of a spiritual awakening from living the AA program. Alcoholics Alcoholics who try to disprove this end up drunk. So to practice these principles in all our affairs, the principles are the steps, but there's also layers and layers that I've experienced through the steps. Um, I didn't know how to live before I came to you. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love booze. I, I didn't know how to relate. Um, I didn't know how to respond. I was terrified all the time. Um, that, that ego, that, uh, you know, the, the separation from you and, and from God, So a principle is an essential truth upon which other truths are based. A rule by which a person chooses to govern his conduct. So these are some principles that I learned from you as a result of working the steps that I choose to govern my life. You know, some days I do better than others. But um, in the 12 and 12, in step one, it says the principle that we shall have no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat. You know, surrender to win, the gift of the bottom. You know, until I could accept my alcoholism, I couldn't stay sober. You know, as we've heard other speakers cheer this week, I mean, step one for me is that I'm screwed. I love what Chuck C. said, I flat lost the battle of life. I gave it everything I could, and I was bankrupt in all concerns. Um, and then in step two, you know, practicing the, uh, you know, the, the principle of, of hope. Um, you know, I come in here powerless and hopeless, and I get a power and I get a hope as a result of, of coming to believe and surrendering. Um, I also believe the principle that, uh, that I'm going to treat my alcoholism, my alcoholism demands, demands to be treated. I'm going to treat my alcoholism with Alcoholics Anonymous or Alcohol. I believe that. I, you know, sadly, since September 10th of 1988, I've seen it proven over and over again heartbreakingly. Um, I believe that my defense against the first drink must come from a higher power, that I can't fix my mind with my mind, that I'll be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge, that self-reliance has failed me, that no human power could have relieved my alcoholism, but God could and would if he were sought. You know, I love in the, the big book when it talks about that if you're as uh, alcoholic as we are, there's no middle-of-the-road solution. One was to go to the bitter end trying to blot out the consciousness of our intolerable situation, which is hell, or accept spiritual aid. Now, I mean, sadly, I have those same issues with defects. I mean, I can in sobriety, you know, the obsession to drink has been removed, but I can try and manage my defects, crack these doors, you know, blotting out the consciousness until I can just surrender and accept spiritual aid. Those are principles that I, that, that I, I love. You know, in step three, learning to, to take the action and leave the results to God. In early sobriety, my sponsor would say, sanity is going to start in your feet. Faith is going to start in your feet. You know, getting up, suiting up, and showing up. You know, the decision in step three to work the rest of the steps, to see what I can bring to a situation instead of what I can get. That faith without works is dead. But this is a faith with works program. Um... You know, and step four, learning to pray and then do it afraid, practicing that courage. You know, I'm an inventory writing machine. My sponsors get irritated with me because I'm saying, put it on paper, put your fears down, you know, put down the resentment. You know, look, look at where you've put yourself in a position to be hurt because that's the quickest relief for me. You know, my sponsor would say, you take the me out of blame and it's blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so. So I love this ability to look at the things I'm not powerless over with God and AA and address those instead of being out of my pee picking mind, being obsessed with what, uh, what's wrong with you. Um, you know, integrity. Uh, to thine own self be true. That you know, both my husband and I are in accountability groups to be accountable to God and others. You know, I, I, the principle I believe in is that uh, my e- my ego is not my amigo. That I need to smash that bad boy. You know, I spent my life pumping it up, feeding that ego, and um, and the steps wanted to to deflate that. Um, Exposing things to the sunlight of the Spirit. Taking it out from between my two ears. That if I stand for nothing, I'll fall for anything. You know, I bent myself in a pretzel because I was so desperate for your approval when I was out there. Um, The the humility. Um, I love what it says in the 12 and 12. Of myself, I can do nothing. It's the Father within who doeth the works. And I don't say this with any sort of false humility. I'm capable of anything untreated. My life... My decisions, the choices I made, I am capable of anything when I'm not connected to to you and God. So of myself, I can do nothing. Um, You know, not thinking highly of myself or lowly of myself, trying not to think of myself at all. You know, clear recognition of who and what I am followed by sincere attempt to become what I can be. I love what uh, Kent shared on 6 and 7. I can't without him, he won't without me. That there is a requirement, that the suggestion that I'm going to yield, that I'm going to surrender, that I'm going to cooperate with, uh, with the, uh, a spiritual life. And steps eight and nine, practicing justice, judgment, and discipline to develop the best possible relations with every human being we know. You know, it's like to clean away the wreckage of my past. What a gift. And yes, I want other people to forgive me. What a blessing. But I need to forgive myself. I've got to take the action to clear away that wreckage. People can say from daylight to dark, I forgive you. But unless I'm taking the action to, to clean up that tornado and that wreckage, then um, I, I, it's hard to have the promises man, uh, manifest in my life. Um, the principles of open-mindedness and perseverance in step 10. You know, In the big book, it says what I always knew is the golden rule. And it, it says, "You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. you know, I couldn't live that way without you. Um, and, and step 11, you know, the continuing to seek and you will find, seeking to approve, be still and know that I am God. Uh, my sponsor used to say, are you going to miss this opportunity to grow along spiritual lines? And sometimes the answer would be yes. Yes, he needs to grow along spiritual lines. And, but, but really, the answer is no. You know, life is difficult. I want to go through the pain of growing and not backing up. Whatever direction I'm headed is where I'm going to end up. So these little individual choices, um, you know, all of it matters. And then, of course, love and service in, uh, in step 12. You know, we've got to give it away to keep it. We've got to grow or go. That we're going to reap what we sow. That, you know, the trust God clean house and, and help others. And too much in whom is, to whom much is given, much is required. And I've been given so, so much. So growing up is not just aging. You know, I just thought I would just age and have character and virtue and principles. No, no, I have to make a deliberate, intentional, specific persevering, enduring decision to, to, to practice the opposite of things that come natural to me. Um, i got to choose integrity over people-pleasing, character over comfort, spiritual over material, internal over external, supernatural over natural, God's will over self-will, God-reliance over self-reliance, substance over appearance, depth over challenges, uh, over sh- shallowness. Shallowness, I was so shallow. It was all about trappings. Um, I also have found a, a, a principle I believe is true as a result of working all 12 steps, that um, change doesn't necessarily mean growth, but growth always means change. I can change home groups, sponsors, spouses, cities, and not grow a lick. In fact, I could back up. But it, but the decision to growth is a deliberate decision, and growth always means change. Um, God develops these principles in your life by allowing you to experience circumstances in which you're tempted to express the exact opposite quality. Character development always involves a choice and a temptation, provides that opportunity. God uses the opposite situation of each principle to allow us a choice. I can't claim to be good if I've never been tempted to be bad. I can't claim to be faithful if I've never had the opportunity to be unfaithful. Integrity is practiced by surrendering the temptation to be dishonest. Humility grows when I refuse to be prideful. Every time I I refuse to be offended, my ego deflates. I mean, we've had opportunities to be offended this weekend. We've always got opportunities to be offended. Every time I miss the opportunity to be offended, my ego deflates. Every time I choose godly principles over selfish, self-centered defects, I grow along spiritual lines. I'm like Jim in the big book. I gotta enlarge my spiritual life. Uh, Perseverance develops every time I choose God's will over self-will. And the principle of love in step 12. You know, I really didn't know how to love until I came to you, um, in no small part, from Chuck seeing a new pair of glasses when he talked about love is an action. If I'd heard that before, I'd never received it. But, but, you know, acting like I'm a loving person, my heart starts to change. Love can't be learned in isolation. I have to be around people, irritating, imperfect, frustrating people. You know, I want to sit in my room and learn to be loving. I wanna sit in my room and learn to be kind. No, I gotta go out here and flummox around and do the best I can and, um, and practice. Like Bill Wilson said, because of our kinship and suffering and because our common means of deliverance are effective only when we constantly are carrying it to others, our channels of contact have always been charged with the language of the heart. So the service, um, you know, love and service, that, that, the, the ticket, that's what this is all about. You know, somebody had talked about uh, how somebody had apparently gone to Michelangelo and it was a fabulous statue of David. And they said, oh my gosh, this amazing statue. How did you do that? And Michelangelo said, I cut away everything that wasn't David. Well, these steps cut away everything so the grace of God can enter into me. All my pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth, self-will, all the things that are blocking me off from being a channel, from being equipped to be of service to you and to God. So... I can give without loving, but I can't love without giving. And this is a program that uh, if you continue to practice the principles, uh, to grow along spiritual lines, uh, that you really can be a love machine. (laughs) You can be a love machine and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, In closing, I just want to say, before I introduce my favorite alcoholic in the world, you haven't gone so far that he can't reach you. You haven't done so much that he can't forgive you. You haven't sunk so low that he cannot lift you. You haven't stayed so long that he no longer knows you. You haven't said so much that he has nothing else to say to you. You've not sold your soul as he cannot redeem you. You've not destroyed so much that he cannot rebuild you. You're not hated so much that he cannot love you. You have not been dead so long that he cannot raise you. And I came to you as a walking dead. As a result of the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to experience the joy of living in a life beyond my wildest dreams. So, the love of my life, the apple of my eye, my husband, Steve e. right.
1: My name is Steve Eining, I'm alcoholic and I'm obviously a spiritually growing alcoholic. (laughs) I'm grateful to God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for another day of sobriety. My sobriety date is June 27th, 1976. I came in when I was 12. (laughs) 1976 wasn't the first time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I came the first time in 1974. I was 23 years old. Now, I want to tell you that uh, we have a unique opportunity here. We have a unique ability here that we can communicate with each other like nobody else can. The alcoholic understands the alcoholic. Now, I want to tell you that other people have tried to carry a message to us. I know that you had people when you were out there drinking and using that truly loved you that tried to carry a message to you. I certainly had people that tried to carry a message to me, it just was the wrong message. You see, I had people that really, really loved me and they, you know, when, and they would say the strangest things to me. You know, they would come up to me and they would say things like this, Steve, you know, if you just didn't drink so much you'd be alright. <laughs> Steve, If you just quit smoking those funny cigarettes, you'd be all right. Steve, if you just quit putting that stuff up your nose, you'd be all right. Steve, if you just quit taking those little black pills, you know, the ones that make you grind your teeth and talk about things you don't know nothing about? (laughs) If you just quit doing that, you'd be all right. Now, when they say that to us, there was one thing they were absolutely clear about. They have no clue. They treat us like drinking's an option. See? And so what we do when they say that, because we know that they say it out of the the goodness of their heart and they truly love us, so what we do is we look at them like this, and we shake our head. And we're thinking this, if I stop drinking, I just might kill you. (laughs) Because they think you and I have a drinking problem. What you and I have is a sobriety problem. I was sober for five years in Alcoholics Anonymous and it dawned on me that there's only one thing that ever drives an alcoholic to drink. Just one thing. Sobriety. Sobriety will drive the alcoholic to drink every time. I can't stand sobriety. You know, when I'm I'm sober I'm faced with the one thing I've always tried to avoid. Me! Right? So in order for me not to have to treat my disease with alcoholic drugs I have to treat it with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, because in those steps I found a solution. I found the ability to live out there in this world and to fit in and to feel feel good about who I am. Now I want to tell you that the first time that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous I want to talk a little about the people in the program that carried the message to me. But the first time that, that uh, I ever he- the Alcoholics Anonymous ever came to my knowledge was in 1974. I was 23 years old, I had been arrested again, and I was getting ready to go to prison for five years. And I didn't want to go. I did the only thing any grown man would do. I started to cry and I called my mother. And I said, Mom, I'm, I'm going to jail. And she said, what's new? And I said, no, no, no. They want to send me up for five years, and I can't do that. Now I want to tell you, I'm 23 years old. I've been married and divorced three times. Oh, come on. <laughs> like, I always wanted to get married. I just never wanted to be married. And, you know, it's like the alcoholic dilemma. Anybody that would marry me, why would I want to be in a relationship with them, right? <laughs> i have been in and out of jail more times than I could count. And up until that point, no one had ever mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous. But that day on the phone, she said to me, Steve, I think you're an alcoholic. Would you like me to call somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous? I had no idea what that was. I thought it must be a government agency, right? You call somebody from the Department of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? (laughs) Now, I'd spent three and a half years in the Marine Corps. I knew a little bit about how the government worked. This guy called me on the phone. His name was Marty. And he he said, my name's Marty, and I'm an alcoholic. Sounds like a job title, right? And I knew that he worked for the government. The reason I knew that was because he spent about 15 minutes on the phone with me, and he never talked about the problem. He talked to me about my drinking, you know, my life. I had a problem. I'm getting ready to go up the river. You know, he never discussed that with me, but, I, but I, I, I have another disease, and I always like to share this in case there's somebody else who, else who has that disease. It's called terminal intelligence. <laughs> you know, that's when, that's when we already know what's going to happen. We're just trying to work it out to our advantage. You know, we sit around in these meetings, and, you know, I never said anything to my sponsor unless I knew exactly what he was going to respond. A few times he did fool me, but so I know what's going to happen. All I've got to do is convince this guy from the Department of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm an alcoholic, and we'll go down and convince the judge that I figure there's Alcoholics Anonymous out they'll probably give me an ID that says, has my picture on it, and Department of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, um, and so I'll be certified by the state of Florida, right? And so he spends about 15 minutes, and he asked me if he could come by my office. Now the reason I was at my office was I was cleaning my desk out because I just got fired because I ran one of their cars head onto a palm tree. And uh, they, they were not happy about that, so I was cleaning out my office. He asked me if he could come by my office. Now, when I hung up the phone, I want to tell you, the fear crept over me. I, I had this vision of Marty pulling up to my office in a white 1963 Ford Falcon. And on the doors it would say, Department of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and they'd come in and they'd ask for me by name. And they'd know. Their car is totaled because I ran it head on into a palm tree. You know. Lord, we don't care if anybody sees us drinking, but God, don't let anybody see us do anything about it. All right? We don't want that to happen. Marty pulled up to my office in a brand new Porsche. It was a program of attraction. I wanted what he had. And he came into my office and he did the same thing he did on the phone. He started asking me questions about my drinking and about my personal life. And finally I stopped him. And I said, Marty, I gotta know, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he said, Steve, normally we allow you to make that decision. He said, however, in your case, <laughs> I thought to myself, this plan is coming together. This, is, this plan is working out well. And so I asked Marty if he would go to court with me, and he said that he would. And, and I and I, in all fairness, I went to four or five of those meetings. And they, you know, of course, they asked you the question: are you willing to go to any length to stay sober? But I had a secret. And here's the secret: alcohol still worked for me. And see, it doesn't. You would, if you looked at my life from the outside. If you were not an alcoholic, and you looked at my life from the outside, it looked horrible. I'm getting ready to go up the river. I, I've lost my job. I'm divorced again. I got no place to live, and I got no hope. This guy's probably ready. But let me tell you something. I knew alcohol would fix it. I knew that if I just could drink a little bit, it would. Be, but I'm not saying that. I'm willing to go to any length. What I thought he said was, are you willing to go to any length not to go to prison? The answer was yes. <laughs> and I went to those meetings, and, you know, and I listened to what they said, and I got emotional at the right moments, and, you know, and I cried, and I walked out of the room, and I'll tell you, don't try that. People in Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't get it. You walk out the room, they don't come after you, you know, so <laughs> it doesn't work, you know. And so Marty, you know, and I went to court, and, and my attorney went to court, and I, I had a Believe it or not, I had a psychiatrist, he went to court with me, and I had Marty from a a go. And they called my case up, I walked up, my attorney walked up, the, attorney, uh, the psychiatrist walked up, and Marty, he just sat there. And I turned around and I looked at him like, you, you, they called me, and like, this is our cue, we go now. <laughs> he looked me straight in the face, you know what he said? It's gonna be all right. <laughs> I thought if I ever get out of this, I'll never go back to that a a again. And the judge looked down at me, and the judge said, you know, he, you know what he said to me? He said, Steve, everybody seems to think you're an alcoholic. He said, I want to tell you. He said, I don't think you're an alcoholic. Now, I knew at that moment that's why they made him the, him the judge. Because he, he looked at me, and here's what he said. I think you're crazy. I think I'm crazy, too. It's clear to me normal people don't live like I live. And, but then he, he said something that he thought would make me feel bad. He said, you're not worth being on my conscience. I wasn't worth being on my conscience. What do I care about his conscience? It didn't, buy, you know, okay. I'm not worth being your conscience. Big deal. Like, that's the worst thing you can say to me? It didn't faze me in the least. He said, I'm going to send you up for 30 days, and when you come back for jaywalking, and when you come back, I don't care if it's for jaywalking, you're going up for five years. I did that 30 days, and I got out, and Marty called me as soon as I got out of jail and wanted me if I wanted to go to a meeting. I thanked him for the call, and... Uh, <laughs> And I, I wanted to explain some things to him. that, you know, they read the same thing at every meeting. Did you know that? Every meeting. You'd think they'd come up with something new. And Marty said some things to me that I've, ne- I've never forgotten. He said, Steve, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a game, and we don't come here to play. He said, Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life, and you'll get out of it exactly what you put into it. He said, people come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and they play around with this thing, and they come in and out. He said, and eventually, they either die or they go insane through these alcohol and drugs don't play with your life. And I thought to myself, who is he trying to scare? You can't scare an alcoholic. See, I spent my whole life terrified. Now, I don't know how it is for the women, but i tell you how it is for the men. We're so terrified we just walk around mad all the time because we don't want you to know that we're afraid. We're terrified of the reality that we can't make it, that we're going to come up short. Well, it wasn't long before I started drinking again and I realized what my problem was. It was Jacksonville, Florida. No, seriously, if you live in Jacksonville, you pretty much have to drink. They don't appreciate people with. My, so I, I decided what I need. I knew one person that lived in Santa Barbara, California, and I moved to Santa Barbara. And I lasted out about there, out there about sixty days, and um, she had never met anybody quite as crazy as I was, and I came home in her car after being out all night, in her car. I had no job, and, and she met me in the driveway, and she said to me, you need to move. I said, well, do you mean like at the end of the month? She said, today. I said, well, I don't have any money. She said, that's a problem, but it's not my problem. I said, can you give me to the end of the week? And she said, no. I want to tell you, if you're going to be homeless, I recommend Santa Barbara. <laughs> you know, you know the weather's nice, and I slept under, under a beautiful big fig tree right next to the ocean. And I want to tell you, here's what happened to me. Alcohol systematically took everything out of my life. Anybody ever tried to care for me was gone. There was nothing left. And when everything was gone, alcohol left. And that's the worst place that an alcoholic can be when all I can do is get physically drunk and I can no longer turn my head off. And I'm stuck with the one thing I've tried to avoid my entire life, me. God, I didn't know what to do. I, believe me, Alcoholics Anonymous was not my first call, it was my last call. I called my mother. When she found out I was 3,000 miles away from home, she was thrilled. When, <laughs> when she found out I didn't have the money to get back, she was ecstatic. <laughs> Here's what she said to me, and I share this with you because she saved my life. When She said, she said Steve, if you have the ability in you to care about anybody, about anybody else other than yourself, please do us a favor and leave us alone. Don't call here anymore. We are sick and tired of worrying about you. Whether you're on the streets again, whether you've killed somebody, whether you're in prison, we can't do it, leave us alone. And I hung up on the phone and I would tell you, there was nobody else to call, and you know what I thought? I heard Marty's voice in my head when he said, it's gonna be all right, and for some reason, on June 17, 1976, I called the intergroup office in Santa Barbara, California. This woman from Dallas, Texas, answered the phone, and I said, my name's Steve, and I got a problem. And she said, I know, honey, I got the same problem. <laughs> I hadn't told her what my problem was yet, so I, you know. And so I, she, so I made an appointment with Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I, got my, uh, I got my best pink suit out of my... Out of my uh, glad bag uh, luggage and I went I went and got cleaned up and I, I had an afro at the time, I got my afro all as, oh, I got it as round as I could be but if you have an afro and you're sleeping in the woods you always have some sticks in it so you can't take it out. I put on my pink suit and I put on my platform shoes and and I put on my my pink tie with a picture of a naked lady on it and I'm going to A&A baby. This is, my, this is a big interview for me. I get, up, I get up to the Alcoholics Anonymous office, you know what it said on the door? Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought people are going to see me going in here. I'm sleeping under a tree. <laughs> I walk in that office and I want to tell you something. There was a man in there that uh, was sober 15 years and uh, now I know that I listen to people picking sponsors, and they inter- now, today they interview sponsors. I'd like to interview you to see if you qualify to be my sponsor. I don't do that, but, and, and I, but I want to tell you that I hear people talk about how you know, their sponsors are loving. Compassionate. I want to tell you something. The only criteria I had for picking a sponsor in 1976 was he looked like he could loan me some money. Yeah. I'm sleeping on the streets, I got no money, no hope, and I already know, remember that, remember that terminal intelligence? I already know what my solution is. If I can just find somebody to loan me some money, and I can find a woman that's looking for a homeless, unemployed man, I'm gonna be good. No, no, they're in Alcoholics Anonymous, trust me on this. But I made a mistake that day when I went to the intergroup office, I I asked that woman from Dallas, I said, are there any single women in Alcoholics Anonymous? She looked me straight in the face and she said, not for you, honey. And, and Jim, and I want to tell you that Jim was not as compassionate and understanding as I. He was actually pretty cruel. Matter of fact, he told me I was the most pitiful human being he'd ever seen. And to this day, it's 39 years later. He's sober 54 years, and he's not loaned me any money yet. So, he's still my sponsor. I, when I when I moved uh, from Santa Barbara back to Jacksonville, I didn't know that you could leave your sponsor, so I moved him with me. So he lives in Jacksonville now. So. But I, I became willing to do what they asked me to do. And you know, Jim said to me, he said, Steve, if you've got a war going on inside, it makes no difference who wins, you lose. The only way to win this battle is surrender, to give it up. And I didn't know anything about surrender, but that day I was beaten to submission. And I was willing to do what they asked me to do, and I knew for sure it, it wouldn't work. And now I'm back into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've got a secret. But this secret's different. This secret is, I know I'll drink again. I know I'm going to drink again. I always drink again. I'm not telling you that, but I know it. What I didn't know was that I had taken the first part of the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stand here in front of you 39 years later and tell you my name's Steve Vining. I'm an alcoholic. Left to my own means, I will drink again. You see, and I've never forgotten that, but I have a gift, the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the only way I keep this gift is by giving it away. You know, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I caught that fire that we kept, you know, we come into Alcoholics Anonymous and we want, we want people to come to Alcoholics Anonymous that never drank, right? We're on fire for this thing. We, we want to pour liquor down people's throat, drag them in, you know. I'm going to be, I, you know, I'm going to be on the AA police, man. I'm really, I'm into this thing. And, and they won't let, they won't let me do it. They said, Steve, we don't, you know, we carry the message, not the mess. You know, we'll let you know. They wouldn't even let me talk in meetings, you know. So, you know, so here I am and I'm, I get a call at four o'clock in the morning from my sponsor. Four o'clock in the morning. He calls me. I've been sober now about, oh, 45 days. He says to me, Steve, I got a call from, from, uh, from the intergroup office, and we got a drunk. We got to go pick him up. He's on a park bench in front of Caro's restaurant here in Santa Barbara. We got to go pick him up. I thought to myself, yeah, he got a call. I didn't get a call. Why, I got to go pick him up at four o'clock in the morning. I'm not happy, right? I'm figuring this is, this is newcomer abuse, right? You know, what, you know, they always abuse the newcomers. So, I, you know, but I, I'm, I'm doing what they tell me to do, so I get dressed, and he go, we go pick up this, new, this, uh, this guy on, on the park bench and We take him to Kara's, and you know what it turned out, the guy, he wanted, he wanted a cheeseburger is what he wanted, and so we got him a cheeseburger. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm up at four o'clock in the morning, this guy wants a cheeseburger. I'm listening to him and, I, and you know, we're talking and all this. He got no interest in it. staying sober. So we got through eating and so we're taking him back to where he wants to go. And where he wants to go is he wants to go downtown Santa Barbara, right between the alley where Fellowship Hall is and a, a, a restaurant. And we let him out and we sit there and we watch. He gets out of the car, he walks down the middle alley, he gets in his cardboard box and he goes to sleep. But for the grace of God, there go I. You see, I got the message. The message was, that's me. If I would have got done what I wanted to do, I would have missed that learning opportunity. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, <clears throat> and so then, I was so, I'm was i sober about 90 days, I get the call. You know the call, the call when, when they have <clears throat> given you the rights of carrying the message. You are now in the elite where you can carry the message. They call me at 7 o'clock in the morning. They said, Steve. We've just got here to the intergroup office, and we got a guy down here. He needs help. We need you. All right. <laughs> no, I'm carrying the message. That's what I'm doing. I'm carrying the message. So I get, I, I, I get in the, the little car I got, and I go, down to, I go down to the intergroup office there, and there he is. You know, it's about, it's about 8 o'clock. I said to him, I said, when's the last time you had a drink? He said about 6.30. I said, Okay there's a meeting at 8 o'clock, that's where we're going. I take him to the meeting. We sit in the meeting and they ask for newcomers. I gave him the elbow. My sponsor gave me the elbow, I gave him the elbow. He raised his hand. Meeting got over, I took him, and I, I went to the grocery store and I bought orange juice, M&Ms, and K-Row syrup. I mixed orange juice and k syrup together. And I gave it to him, drink that and put these M&Ms in your pocket. I don't know why they made me do it, I'm making him do it, right? <laughs> I take him to a noon meeting. I get to the noon meeting. They ask for newcomers, I give him the elbow, he raises his hand. I'm telling you something, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm carrying a message. I, I got no idea what I, am carrying a message. So I know the next, so I then, then we go get lunch. Now I know there's a three o'clock meeting, right? So we pull up to go to this three o'clock meeting. We get there, I get the car, he gets out and I get out and you know now all of a sudden, last drink he had was 6.30 that morning. It's now almost three o'clock in the afternoon. He looks at me and he says, you know, Steve, he says, uh, I believe I need a drink. I'm armed by Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> this does not faze me. I said to him what they said to me. I don't know whether you need a drink, but I'll tell you what. Let's go into this meeting, and if at the end of this meeting, if you still think you need a drink, feel free to go get a drink. He looked at me and said, no. Nah? He said, no, nah, I don't need to go to that meeting. I need a drink. Now I don't know what to do. <laughs> so I started begging, right? I said, man, I spent all day with you. I bought you orange juice K Cairo, sir. I took you to life. I took you to me. Be- I said, man, I, what, you, leave, you can wait for me. He said, i said, I'll tell you what. He said, Steve, he said, uh, you've been real good to me. Dude. He said, i tell you what, I'll buy you a drink, too. <laughs> I'm not getting a drink, but you know what? I can't wait to get in that meeting. 'Cause I, you, I, I want to skip <clears throat> chapter five of the traditions. I don't want to read the promises. I just want them to ask for a topic. I got a topic. <laughs> I get in this, I get in this meeting. They ask for the topic. I raise my hand and I tell them my story. Well, I tell them how I've been carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, and I have been abused. I've been taking. I cannot believe this is happening. And it went. No, I went around the meeting and I want to tell you something. People told me how wonderful I was. What a good job I did. It was so But you know what? There's always an old timer that'll screw the whole thing up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's always somebody with some sobriety that gets in there and just and it, it, he was the last person to share. He could have just passed, right? <laughs> he looked me straight in the face. You know what he said to me? He said, "Who died and made you God?" He said, You're, it's not your business what happens to him. Your business is carrying the message. And I started thinking about that, and I started thinking about <clears throat> Three years earlier, in Jacksonville, Florida, a guy carried, me, carried the message to me. And when, when I was ready to hear it, I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got the message. The message is, we carry it. We carry what we've got. We share that, that spiritual experience. We give it away, and we get the we get to reap the rewards. I want to tell you it was an incredible experience for me, learning about this thing. We get you know we got to, we got to give it away to keep it, and I want to tell you that, I you know I had a, a, one of the most incredible experiences in my sobriety. With, with this step, and I, I want to share that with you. I was sober about three years, and I want to tell you that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me not to get involved in a relationship for a year. Can you imagine telling an alcoholic not to get involved in a relationship in a year? I got emotionally involved holding hands during the Lord's Prayer, you know? <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. You know, you know when you're standing there, and when they say, keep coming back, and she gives you that special squeeze, you know? Now, and you know nobody else is getting that but you, and it, God's rewarding your, your behavior, and, and you're gonna become Mr. and Mrs. AA. And it dawns on you at that moment, life really is good. It's always been good. Even when it was bad, it was good. And then they say amen, and she leaves with her husband. And you know life's always been bad. <laughs> even, when you, even when you thought it was good, it was bad. But I, I, after I was sober a year, I got involved in a relationship, or at least it looked like a relationship for where I was. Uh, I had no idea what that meant. I was sober, I got involved. In a, she was not in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think that she stuck with me because she never might being quite as unique as I was, you know? I mean, it was, I'm sure of that. And so at, when I was sober three years, I got an opportunity uh, to, to come to Tampa, Florida. I was in Santa Barbara. I got an opportunity to come to Tampa to run a business for someone. And I'll tell you this incredible deal for a guy that, you know, couldn't keep a job. I'm going to come to Tampa and, and I'm going to run this business. And, and so I, I'm here, and I'm here for about oh, 30 or 60 days. And uh, I woke up one day and I decided to call her. And, I, I, and I, I called her and I said to her, I said, I've thought about this and I think we should get married. It didn't exactly sound like a question, did it? Yeah. And she said, uh, I don't think so. I said, does that mean you want to wait till the holidays? She said, I don't think so. I said, well, does that mean you want to wait till like right after the first of the year? And she said, listen closely. I don't think so. I want to tell you something. I'm sober three years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want to drink. I wanted to die. I not hurt so bad. I absolutely was in horrific pain, and I want to tell you this, just so you understand. When I when I describe my my pain is much much greater than yours. No. No, seriously, I've experienced my pain. Believe me, it's horrible. It, it, it's excruciating, and so. And so, and now and I'm sober. Three years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I do the only thing that anybody th- three years in an alcoholic. I started to cry and I called my mother. Yeah. I I want to explain to her what had happened to me. I got about halfway through the conversation. Here's what she said to me. She said, I know you're not drinking, but you sound just like you did when you were drinking. You know what I said? I don't have to listen to this crap. hung up the phone. I called my sponsor. That's right. I I want to explain to him. So I called him on the phone. I started to explain to him what what had happened, what she had done, and all this. And about halfway through the conversation, I realized that uh, I had a dial tone. (laughs) So I called him back, and I said, said, we got disconnected. (laughs) Did you talk to him? (laughs) (laughs) He said, we certainly did. We'll continue to get disconnected if you want to talk about her. There's nothing we can do for her. He said, if you'd like to talk about you, I'm willing to listen. And I'd be willing to share with you my experience and strength. And perhaps you can get some hope. I know what's going to happen. He's going to give me advanced AA now. Now now you're going to get the level that takes you above all that, right? I'm ready. So I'm I'm telling him what's going on. He says, okay, I'll tell you what you want to do. He said, I want you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. He said, I want you to stand at the door and I want you to greet the other people coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I want you to get phone numbers. He said, I want you to call another alcoholic every day and I want you to call me the other day. You know what I said? I've been sober three years. I don't have to do that. He hung up. (laughs) So I went to those meetings in Tampa and it took me about a week and I called him up and I said, let me tell you something. They don't do it right in Tampa. <laughs> no, I, I, said they, I said, the meetings are only an hour long, and, and in California they were an hour and a half. I said, they don't hold hands when they say the Lord's Prayer. I said, I, I tried to do that once, and the guy looked at me, I told him I was from California, and he walked to the other side of the room. <laughs> and, and he said to me, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, are they staying sober in Tampa? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, you better find out what they're doing and start doing that. See, I thought he was going to say, well, you better come back to California. He said, you better start doing that. You know what I found out about the people in Tampa? They're just as cruel and just as sadistic as the people in California. No, they are. I mean, I would go to those meetings. I, never, I want to tell you something. I was wrapped in the insanity of the disease of, alcoholics and of alcoholism. I'll tell you, it's... It's one, all I wanted to do is put enough distance between me and the behavior. I didn't want to do anything to get. And you know, and every morning, you remember, you remember when you're out there drinking. And every morning, you woke up with that knot in your gut. You God, and and you got, and you know, a drink will fix it. You know, you know. And now here I am. I'm screwed. Every morning I wake up and I have a knot in my gut, and I know I can't drink, and I am in big trouble. And I'm going to meetings and I am in a lot of pain. I'm so sick and tired of people telling me, you know, it's going to be all right. I, I, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just suffer, suffering from the insanity of this disease. I walk into a meeting and, you know, they had the long tables there and, and, uh, and they call on me because they know that I'm a big whiner and, and I'm talking about, all the pain I'm in, and you know, there's always one guy in the group, you're in the middle of talking about how horrible it is, and he shouts, he just looks at you and says, I understand. That was it. I stood up in the middle of that meeting, I said, let me tell you something, you don't understand. You wanna understand? I'll come over there and whip your ass, then you'll understand. (laughs) I turn around and walk out of the the meeting, it was like a cue for the whole group. They said, keep coming back. The next night, I want to tell you something. They, they, they did the worst thing they could do to me. I tell you, every, every night I would go to bed thinking maybe tomorrow it'll be different. Maybe tomorrow it'll be different. They called me at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now listen, they said to me, Steve, we've got a drunk. We need you to go pick him up and take him uh, to, to uh, the hospital here in Tampa because he, before he goes into DT's. Here's what I said let him die why won't somebody help me i'm trying to stay sober and nobody will help me i hung up the phone and i want to tell you all i could think all i could hear in my head was my sponsor saying you don't have to like it you just have to do it and i i I got dressed and i said i'm going to do this but i'm i don't and i and i got dressed and i went and i picked this drunk i found he was there he was sitting there and i put him in my car And we, got, we went just maybe 100 yards, and he was so sick. And we had to stop. And I got out of the car, and I held him in my arms, and he just threw up. And he was so, and I want to tell you something. i have not seen that drunk from that day to this day, but in him, I found the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, because when I was holding him in my arms, just, just for five minutes, the pain went away. The pain went away. And what I found out was this. I wasn't in pain because I was in love. I was in pain because I wasn't surrendered. And that if I truly loved her, I'd want her to be happy, even if it was without me. You see, I found that. The problem when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous was me. As I stand above you today, at this podium, the problem today is me. The solution is God. And you help me get out of of the way and let him in. Thanks a lot.